Our series is called Move, and we started it back in January. We're looking at the life of David in particular, and we've looked at several different stories in David's life. And in these stories, we look at what David goes through. And then the following week, we look at the psalm that David wrote, giving us his own personal insight into that particular incident. They're called the historical psalms, and there are several of them that David wrote during his lifetime. Last week, of course, we focused on Psalm 22, the famous Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That great psalm that many people describe as the fifth passion story outside of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's version. Now today we move to another story in David's life. A little background just to set us up. David had been described after, as a man after God's own heart. The only person in all of Scripture described that way. A guy who, I mean, for some reason, God could look at him and say, this guy loves me in the very depths of his heart. Who he is is all about me, God thought. And that was true. But David was still a human being. He was still one subject to sin, subject to temptation. And unfortunately, some of the things that affect all of us brought him to an incredibly low point in his life. 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 3. We're going to fast forward through David's life. We've been looking at David primarily in his teens and his 20s. Notice, however, in 2 Samuel 5, 3, when all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. We're going to fast forward from the 20s into the 30s. When David was 30 years old, Saul got killed in battle. He and Saul had been going at each other for almost 10 years. And Saul is killed in a battle against the Philistines. His son Jonathan is killed as well, David's best friend. And Judah anoints David as their king. They peel off of Israel. Israel goes with Saul's sons Ishbosheth, and he becomes king over the rest of Israel. And for seven years, there was competition. Competition between the house of Israel and the house of David over Judah. And when David was 37 years old, God finally brought everything together. He is now king over a united Israel. I love one of the first next things it says. This is 2 Samuel 5, 11 and 12. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent envoys to David along with cedar logs, carpenters, stone masons, and they built a palace for David. David's fame is increasing. I mean, people are hearing about him. They're wanting to be allies with him. And so Hiram, the king of Tyre, says, you know what we're going to do? We're going to build this new king a palace. And he sends down these beautiful cedars from Lebanon, and they build this palace for David. And notice verse 12. Then David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel. I mean, David now realized God had fulfilled all of his promises, and David is at the zenith of his power probably somewhere late 30s, maybe 40 years old now. But you know, when you get to the top, there's only one way to go, right? 
The Apostle Paul would tell us in 1 Corinthians, if you think you're standing firm, that's when you better be careful because that's when Satan, he says, sends his temptations. Boy, that was, the tr- that was the case with David. David had got into his 40s. I mean, Israel was expanding rapidly. The army was powerful. He, he had his palace in Jerusalem. I mean, it just looked like nothing was going to stop David, the king of Israel. And then you come to 2 Samuel chapter 5. And what you find in 2 Samuel chapter 5 is some previews. Some previews of things that are going to cause David to stumble. Notice one of them here. After he left Hebron, David took more concubines and wives. David had first made his capital in Hebron, but he always eyed the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, for this entire period, had been under the control of the Canaanites. The Jebusites was the specific group that controlled Jerusalem. And David finally said, I want Jerusalem as my capital. And so they attacked Jerusalem, they captured it, and now David moves his capital to Jerusalem, the city of peace. But in so doing, he decided, I need more companionship. I need more wives, I need more concubines, a kind of a semi-wife, if could describe it that way. And we don't know how many he took. We know that he had eight wives that we know their names of. Maybe others that we don't know their names. And who knows how many concubines. His son Solomon would come along a generation later and said, if you think my father David had some wives and concubines, how about 700 wives, 300 concubines? Let's make it an even thousand. And I don't know about you, but I've thought about that over the years. And I thought, this guy was an idiot. (laughs) I mean, listen, I've been here at Hendersonville for three years. I still don't know y'all's names. But can you imagine going up to see one of your wives and having to say to an attendant, what's her name? How long have we been married? Okay, where'd she come from? I mean, good night. How do you even try to do something like that? David had kind of prompted him to go that route. Here's what's sad about that. If you go back to the book of Deuteronomy, Moses made a warning to the future kings. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, he says, listen, there's three things that the future kings don't need to do. Number one, you don't need to increase your horses because if you do, you begin to think that you're the source of your military power and not God. Number two, you don't need to take many wives because if you take many wives, they're going to lead your heart astray. And then number three, don't accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. David violated at least two of these three, maybe all three. Solomon violated all three of them. And you can almost hear Moses from the grave going, are you not listening? You would think eight, ten, fifteen wives, concubines, that you know, sexual temptation, that type of problem wouldn't be around But you know, having a lot of wives and concubines doesn't decrease the sexual appetite. It actually increases it. And it was that that brought David down. 2 Samuel 11, one of the most devastating chapters in all the Bible. 
tells the story of David and how that in the spring at the time when kings go off to war, David is now about 47, 48 years old. Now, you, you may be asking, how did you get there? Well, David lived to be 70. His son Solomon took over when he died. His son was 20. So if you back that up, Solomon was born when David was 50 years old. Okay? Solomon is Bathsheba's son. It's her second son by David. We'll see what happened to the first one here in a moment. And so simply by calculating backwards, you realize that he's somewhere around 47, 48 years old. And and, and the text begins by telling us in the spring. You see, in the ancient world, you didn't fight wars in the wintertime. You go, why not? Number one, it's too cold. Number two, it's too wet. I mean, if you've got chariots, you don't want them marring up in the mud. And not only that, but over in Jerusalem, it snows in the wintertime. A lot of people don't realize this. Just a few uh, weeks ago, Jerusalem had a snowfall. I mean, it gets that cold in Jerusalem. And of course, back then, having troops out in the field in the wintertime was just an invitation for disaster. And so kings didn't fight in the wintertime. Everybody knew that. And so in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, this king didn't. Sent his nephew Joab off to fight. And boy, what a mistake that was. Springtime. Just like it is right now. And David's in his palace and he gets up one afternoon and he starts looking over this city that he had just built. I mean, he had had this city now for a few years. His palace, beautiful palace of cedar had been built. And he's looking over it. And, and, and one afternoon, he gets up, evidently from a nap. He goes, and as he's looking out over his city, he notices a woman bathing down in the city below him. Now, one of the things that happens a lot of times right here is people begin to debate, who's at fault here? Is it David or is it Bathsheba? Is it both of them? Is David the predator here? Is Bathsheba the innocent one? I mean, did she not agree to, you know, I mean, all the questions go on and on and on. And can I just tell you that the Bible doesn't answer those questions? And I think we make a mistake sometimes when we think we can figure it out. What we do know is this, is that the woman who was bathing was a very beautiful woman. Now, oftentimes I hear people say, well, she should have been more private. You need to understand something. In the ancient world, there was no such thing as privacy. We don't understand that sometimes. But I mean, even in Jesus' day, privacy was not what we experience here in America today. I mean, everybody's life was open to the public. And notice what the text says. The woman was, and this is what's fascinating. She wasn't just beautiful. She was very beautiful. I mean, the Holy Spirit is wanting to say, listen, if you want to talk about a temptation, here's the temptation. This woman is not just beautiful. She's very beautiful probably somewhere in her 20s. Her husband is Uriah, one of David's 30 mighty men. I mean, he's one of David's great commanders. Her her grandfather is, is one of David's advisors. David knows the family well. He just maybe had never seen Bathsheba, at least not since she had grown up. James chapter 1 tells us something about temptation. Half-brother of Jesus says every person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. Sin, when it's 
a full-grown gives birth to death. Boy, did it ever in this story. Notice the two words or two phrases underlined here. Evil desire and enticed. I like what Diedrich Bonhoeffer, Diedrich Bonhoeffer uh, was a philosopher, theologian uh, during the 1900s. Uh, he was killed by Hitler right before the end of World War II. His, his life story is a fascinating story. If you ever get a chance, I've read his biography and just wept at the end of his biography because of how much this guy really loved God. Fought against Nazi Germany. Had a chance to come to the United States and they said, why don't you stay over here? And he said, no, someone has got to go over there and be the conscious of Germany. And so he went over there and gave his own life to be the conscious of Germany. Bonhoeffer says this, in our members there is a slumbering inclination toward desire. Notice that word slumbering, which is both sudden and fierce. With irresistible power, desire seizes uh, magistry of the flesh. All of the once a secret smoldering fire is kindled. The flesh burns as in flames. It makes no difference whether it's sexual desire, ambition, vanity. It makes no difference if it's revenge or love of fame and power, greed for money. I mean, you just fill in the blank. Whatever your temptation is, Bonhoeffer says, boy, when it fires up, it fires up quick and ferocious in nature. And that's what happened. David. You know, the Bible occasionally says some things you need to flee. Fascinating word to use. You think about Joseph when Potiphar's wife tried to entice him. He literally had to run away, leaving his cloak to get away. Paul would say there are certain things you have to run from. You need to flee from sexual immorality. David should have heard that. He didn't. You need to flee from idolatry. David should have heard that one. He didn't. Paul goes on to say, guess what? Eager for money? You need to flee from this. Boy, you want to talk about some things that would hit a lot of us in here today. I suspect one or two or three would hit a lot of us when we think and are honest with ourselves. Again, with irresistible power, desire seizes the mastery of our flesh. And and you see David doing that. He sends to find out who the woman is. And one of the men come back and says, This is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, who is one of his counselor's sons, thus the counselor's granddaughter. David knew exactly who it was. And then even worse, the wife... David, are you seeing the red flags going off? The wife? No, I'm not. The wife? No, I'm not. I mean, one of you counselor's granddaughters? No, I'm not. It's the wife of Uriah, one of your 30 mighty warriors, one of your commanders of your army. I mean, I don't know if you watched the Masters. June and I, were we were watching the Masters yesterday, and it was getting near the end, and all at once sirens started blaring all over Augusta. I mean, a big line of thunderstorms were coming through, and boy, you see the golfers all at once grabbing their stuff and heading off the course. David desperately needed some sirens going off there in Jerusalem saying, you need to get out of this situation you're finding yourself in. But he doesn't. He sins for her. Why not stand? 
when I stand with the same results that it's been for a lot of people, thousands and thousands and thousands over the years, she sends word back a few days later, I'm pregnant. Boy, how that has changed people's lives. If not yours, at least somebody in your family, we've all experienced it. I'm pregnant. I don't know how many times I've talked with people who have come to my office. My girlfriend's pregnant. And they try to plead with them not to make another mistake. Two wrongs, you know, won't, won't correct that one. And yet oftentimes people go down a path of destruction because someone says, I'm pregnant. And of course, David begins to think, okay, what am I going to do? And so he hatches this plan in his panic. And the plan is so tragic. I mean, the first thing he does is he sends for Uriah. And Uriah comes in, and if you'll notice in the text here, he came to him, and David asked him, how's the war going? And then he says to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet, which is another way of saying, go home and spend some time with your very beautiful wife. But Uriah goes out on the porch there of the palace and sleeps there. And the next morning they tell David, Uriah didn't go home. And he's like, what do you mean he didn't go home? And Uriah's response was, my men are not getting to be with their wives. I will not be with my wife because I've got to set an example. And so David's like, well, that didn't work. So David invites him back into the palace. And this time he gets him drunk. I want you all to think about that for a moment. Look at the text. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. Uriah, drink just a little bit more. Try this wine right here. It's the best wine in all the country. Here, just a little bit more until Uriah is, I mean, just out. And David sends him home again. But Uriah goes back out onto the steps of the palace And in a drunken state, Uriah is more righteous than David in a sober state. And so David finally says, all right, I'll just have him killed. David? The man after God's own heart? I mean, how do you get there? And so he sends a note to Joab, his nephew, commander of the army, Put him at the front of the battle, withdraw from him, and let him get struck down. And that's exactly what happens. And the Bible tells us that as soon as he got word, Bathsheba went into mourning, spent the time necessary to mourn the loss of her husband. Then David sent for her and became his wife. And the text says she bore him a son. Now if that verse had ended there, we might go, wow. But it doesn't end there. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Can I ask you a question? If you took that phrase, but the, whatever the thing is, and then put your name in it, had done what you had done displeased the Lord, what could you put in that place this week? The lie told displeased the Lord. The things I stole displeased the Lord. The lust I had displeased the Lord. The anger I showed, just fill in the blanks and you see the point. David would write about the next few months as Bathsheba is waiting to give birth. God, God had to wait. 
God knew he couldn't confront David at this time, and so he paused, and David talked about... I mean, can you imagine David going back to his palace after he had taken Bathsheba as his wife and started thinking about God? Every Sabbath day, when down at the tabernacle, worship is going on, but it's kind of hard for David to sing, knowing what he had done. He describes it this way in some of the Psalms, whether there's, they're about this particular sin or not, we don't know for sure, but look at the language. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me, and my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. I mean, Tim, yes, it's spring, but give us about three months, and we'll walk outside and go, wow, is it so hot. And David said, that's what my soul felt like. Psalm 6, he says, I'm worn out from my groaning. All night long I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. There is no doubt in the text that David is grieving because of what he's done. But David's caught. You see, David can't fix this. You see, the punishment for adultery is the execution of the adulterer and their partner. The, the punishment for murder is the execution of the person who, in this case, ordered the murder. David is under a death sentence no matter what he does. David can't even confess it out loud right now. He doesn't know what to do. A child is born, and the Lord sends Nathan to him. And Nathan tells him a little story about two men, one poor, one rich, the poor man had one little ewe lamb, just a little bitty lamb that he, he kind of treated like his own daughter. I mean, it ate with him, it slept with him, it was all around him. I mean, he had this ewe lamb like a daughter. I mean, it was so precious to him. The rich man had herds and flocks of cattle and sheep, and he had a guest to come in. And guess what the rich man did? He didn't take from his flocks, but he took the poor man's precious little ewe lamb that lived with him like a daughter, and he slaughtered it. David is furious. That, that man will surely die. And Nathan looks at him and he says, You're the man. You're the man. And David finally can say what he's wanted to say for so long. He simply says, I've sinned against the Lord. And God does something remarkable. Because he knows David's heart. He should have died. But watch what God says to him. The Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. Now boy, at this point you would think David would have said, Whew. But then what comes next is even worse. There's consequences, David. You're not going to die. But you've got to realize that if you sow... You'll eventually reap, and the son that was born to you will die. And one of the saddest stories in all the Bible is David pleading with God, please, please spare the child. But the child dies. Sin has consequences. There would be far many more than just this one in David's life. But the story doesn't end there. If it ended there, it would be a tragic story. But God is a God of unfailing love. And it ends with these words. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba. And he went into her and made love to her. And she gave birth to a son. And they named him Solomon. 
the future king. And I love that last phrase. The Lord loved him just like he loved his dad. You know, I don't know where you are in your life. I don't know what sins you've committed. I don't know where you are in your journey with God. But here's what you need to realize no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, you serve a God who still loves you and will love you to the end. And if you have a need that we can assist with today in responding to God's love, why don't you come as together we stand and sing?